1700 hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Onelin Sinzi, Tabiso Liwuku and Figile Lingwadi. Your top stories. France's de France declassifies documents in the presidential archives relating to the 1994 Rwandan genocide. South African authorities battle to contain attacks against foreign nationals. In economics, African seaborne gas exports will play a bigger role in meeting global LNG trade growth. And in sports, South Africa's 100-meter record holder Simon Mahakwe handed a two-year ban. But first, the news with Onelette. A report on votes counted so far in the presidential elections in the Sudan capital, Khartoum, has put the incumbent president Omar Hassan al-Bashir in the lead. Results of the election, which end today, will be officially announced on the 27th of this month. Al-Bashir has been facing more than 40 small opposition political parties. So far, leaders of the small opposition parties have not posed any major challenge to him, paving the way for the former military man to extend his 25-year civilian rule. James Shimanyula has more. Despite allegations from leaders of Republic of the Sudan's opposition parties that this year's presidential election is not free and fair, President Omar Hassan el-Bashir appears to be heading for a major victory. An election is supervised by Sudan's electoral commission, headed by Professor Mokhtar al-Asham. Responding to claims by government critics that the commission's express purpose is to ensure that al-Bashir retains the presidency, Professor al-Asham dismissed the claims as cheap politics. Nigerian troops will storm what it says is the last remaining Boko Haram stronghold before the handover of power to incoming President Muhammadu Buhari. National Security Advisor Sambo Dasuki says that they are determined to ensure that Sambisa Forest is liberated and free before the handover on May 29th. It is believed that most of the 219 schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram from Chibok, also in the northeastern state of Bono a year ago, are being held in this forest. The military said last year that it knew where they were but ruled out a rescue operation because of the dangers to the hostages. Two students from an Egyptian military academy have been killed and six wounded today when a bomb targeting a minibus exploded in the northern city of Khaf al-Sheikh. Egypt is facing an insurgency based in the North Sinai that has killed hundreds of soldiers and policemen since mid-2013 when then-Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Sisi ousted Islamist President Mohamed Morsi after protests against his rule. There has not been immediate claim of responsibility for today's attack. The UN Refugee Agency has requested the Kenyan government to consider an order to close the Dabab refugee camp in the country, saying it would have extreme humanitarian and practical consequences. Kenyan authorities had given the United Nations a period of three months to immediately close the largest refugee camp in Africa, claiming it was gradually becoming the kindergarten of Al-Shabaab terrorist activities in Kenya. Currently, the refugee complex is housing more than 600,000 refugees, mainly from the neighboring Somalia. Mwai Kigonyo has more. 
The opposition in Kenya says the government's directive should be implemented in an orderly manner to avoid more suffering for the refugees. However, the Speaker of the Senate in Kenya, Ekwe Thuro, says there is need for mechanism to ensure none of the parties involved is compromised. And finally, the institution of race relations says frustration amongst South Africans is a contributing factor to the xenophobic attacks experienced at various places in the country. Foreign shop owners have been evacuated and their shops looted in the Etequin in, 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 in Durban, while foreign shop owners in Johannesburg CBD have closed their businesses following threatening messages. Labor unions are also demanding that ESCOM fires foreigners working on the construction of the Medubi power station in Limpopo. The head of media at the Institution of Race Relations, Minke Stedler, says the economic situation is one of the factors that contributes. It will have uh, serious consequences because these are countries which are neighbors of there's a lot of trade relations and other economic relations between them and South Africa. It applies beyond just the immediate neighbors but to the rest of Africa. I've been sending mixed signals and messages out and I think it is not good enough. Channel Africa News. This is Africa Digest. It's 17.06 Central African time. You, thank you for staying with us. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go to France where... Documents have been declassified rather, in the presidential archives relating to the 1994 Rwandan genocide in which the capital, Kigali, accuses Paris of having an indirect role. A decision to declassify the papers was signed last week and concerns documents relating to Rwandan uh, between 1990 and 1995, spanning the genocide, which claimed at least 800,000 lives. The papers, which include documents for diplomatic and military advisors, as well as minutes from ministerial and defense meetings will be available to both researchers and victims associations. More from Dr. Knox Chitio, who is an associate fellow at the Africa program at the London-based Centre for Policy Research on International Affairs, Chatham House. I think that's a large part of why this, the French are doing it. I think also we should bear in mind relations between France and Rwanda were strained even before Kagame made his accusations last year. There have been ongoing accusations and counter-accusations between the two sides. And the French, for their part, some of the French have accused some members of the current Rwandan government of, of being complicit in the shooting down of Habi Aramana's plane in, in 1994. So, you know, there's been a long history of accusation and counter-accusation. What made it worse, of course, was when Kagame pointedly, directly accused the French of outright involvement a year ago. And so, you know, the French retaliated by not sending a representative to the genocide commemorations last year. Since then, things have been a little bit improved between the two sides. But you're right, it's, it's a very, very fragile relationship. And, you know, there's still some way off a full rapprochement. So do you think it is more likely that these declassified documents will simply confirm existing accounts of the genocide as we know them? 
It's very, very difficult to know at this stage. I mean, what we know at the moment is that the documents really concern perspectives and possible minutes from diplomats, from people on, who were on the ground in Rwanda at the time, and who then went back to France and had these government meetings. So we don't know exactly what's going to be in the documents, but I think there's a hope that they will shed a lot of light on France's perspective. And remember, it's not just on the genocide in 1994. The documents go back to 1990. So I think there's a hope that the, these documents will shed some light on the actual civil war, which was there from 1990 to 1993-94, as well as the genocide, and possibly on actually what happened with regards to the shooting down of Javier Mana's plane. So there's actually three elements on which people are hoping that these documents could shed some light. And talking about the shooting down of Habariyama's plane, you know, with the disclassification of these documents, do you think there is a small step that could lead to big revelations? I mean, will potentially embarrassing revelations widen the diplomatic divide between Rwanda and France if it is likely that the documents would also include that maybe President Paul Kagame was involved in the shooting down of that plane that actually then made things happen in Rwanda? Well, we don't know, because this is the other big question. Yes, the documents have been declassified, but, you know, one knows with, with governments, there's always a question of to what extent have the documents been declassified. So it is quite possible and quite likely that one or two of these documents may actually not have been as declassified as expected because they may have too sensitive material. But what is almost certain is that there will be some revelations. Not everyone, either from Rwanda or France, is going to be happy about what the documents reveal about French and Rwandan relations at the time. There will certainly be something that you know will embarrass some people, but one suspects that the most sensitive documents, it, it is possible, you know, they may sort of have been redacted or may be sensitized on that. So I think there's still that big question, to what degree? Is it 100% declassification or is it a more limited declassification of documents? Because it hasn't been clear. So then that leaves us to wonder or guess how these documents will change the world's knowledge about the genocide and also how it will shape future relations between France and Rwanda. We just simply don't know. Yeah, at this stage, it's really impossible to know for sure. I mean, I I think we should also bear in mind, you know, this declassification of documents is, I think, freighted by the weight of great expectations. There's enormous expectation that the documents will be incredibly revelatory, and, you know, that will be a treasure trove of, you know, entirely new material, entirely new perspectives. But I think one has to approach this with a certain degree of, of pragmatism. We don't know at this stage that they will be as revelatory as people expect. I think at this stage, one, this process is very, very symbolic. It's very significant in terms of its symbolism because what's happening here is that France, in a sense, is in releasing these documents, is admitting to a certain degree of responsibility, to a certain level of mea culpa, if you, if you want to use that, that phrase, in the genocide. 
Dr. Knox Chitiyo is Associate Fellow of the Africa Program at Chatham House, the world-leading centre for policy research on international affairs. He was on the line from London and he was talking to our producer, Jose Khotengake. Now, the former American Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, has ended months of speculation by announcing she's entered the race to win the control of the White House in 2016. She's pledged to champion the aspirations of ordinary Americans and has already hit the campaign trail in her bid for the Democratic Party's nomination. The announcement has sparked widespread reaction globally, with the social networks having gone abuzz. For more on this issue's economy, so spoke to the associate editor at South African-based news outlet The Daily Maverick, Brooks Spector, who agreed that the announcement came as no surprise. It was possibly the single worst-kept secret of all time. (laughs) Uh, People knew she was going to run absent some major medical emergency that took her out of public life. She was absolutely determined to do this. They already had a lease signed for a headquarters office in part of New York City. Senior staff had already been brought on board. The databases that are necessary to help raise funds were already being organized. People were being contacted. Media operation was just about ready to leap forward. By the time the announcement was made, it was almost as if people were going, ah, okay, fine, that's done. Now, of course, um, the announcement has got tongues wagging the world over. And one of the main issues uh, that people were uh, discussing around this particular matter is the question whether America is ready for a female president. Well, in a sense, that argument has been put on hold, if for no other reason, that she already ran for the Democratic nomination in 2008, and it seemed to be almost beyond the discussion that it would be appropriate. I mean, in public life, she's, after all, had a fairly long public profile, some of it uh, ascribed, that is, by virtue of marriage, and some of it earned in her own right. She was not only was she Secretary of State for four years, she was a senator from the state of New York, and then she she was obviously First Lady before that. She was the governor's wife in Arkansas. She had had a substantive career as an attorney before that. In fact, she had been in the national news while she was still in university. She yeah. gave a speech, a, a valedictory speech at her university when she graduated against the war in Vietnam. What was that? Four, that's four, four decades and some ago. If there was ever going to be a female public figure in the United States who would break through that perceptual question, is the country ready for a female president, it would have to seem to be Hillary Clinton. You can argue about the policies that she is going to or may espouse, but it's really hard to argue that she doesn't have the experience or background to guarantee that she is a legitimate and appropriate serious candidate. The question of whether you agree with what she stands for, or if you know what she stands for, those questions remain to be discussed, obviously. Now, obviously, I mean, you've touched on the credentials that she has um, to actually be able to run the seat at the top for next year. But when we look at um, her history, um, what impact would um, her husband's run in office potentially have on her campaign? Well, I mean, part of the problem is, curiously, her husband, Clinton, former president, was such a gifted campaigner that it will always make almost everybody else look not so good by contrast. And and she does not, to be honest, have the same sort of natural gift with people to make them feel that when she's talking with them, 
they are the only people in the universe that matter that he has always had. I mean, you could be in a conversation with him, and as far as the other person was concerned, it would be as if they were the only two people in the universe. And it's, a, it's an extraordinary gift to be able to have it. She's a little less natural that way. She's a little stiffer. She has to reach a little deeper to find the warmth. The big criticism of her 2008 run, in many ways, was that she wasn't warm. She wasn't engaging. She didn't cross that human frontier between people. Her campaign tried to create the illusion that she was an inevitable candidate, but then she ran across someone who was even more inevitable and perhaps had more human warmth, warmth as well, and that was, of course, Barack Obama, who won the nomination and then won the presidency, which is why, I don't know if you looked at the video announcing her, uh, her candidacy that was released over the weekend. If you notice, the first minute or two really didn't feature her at all. Mm -hmm. It had what you would call average, ordinary, ordinary people talking about their hopes, ideals, dreams, fears, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and desires, and then her commenting on that and drawing from that, this is what I want to fight for, this is what I want to achieve. And that's a very different approach than was taken, what, six, seven years ago. Now, just before we let you go, unfortunately, we don't have too much time, but um, I want to touch on policy. I mean, what would a Hillary Clinton-led America look like in terms of policies? What is it that she actually stands for? I mean, we know that she's placed to champion what she calls the aspirations of ordinary Americans, and we did see it in that uh, campaign uh, video that uh, has been running. But um, in your view, policy wise what would that look like well I mean the big thing is going to be playing off of what was in the video a very strong attention to and an interest in dealing with the equality gap mm. this is this is the sense that Americans have uh, that the richest people have done much better in the past 10 to 15 years than have the quote-unquote average person and so much of her message is almost necessarily going to focus on how are we going to make the life of average people better, richer, more fulfilled, easier. The real challenge, of course, is she can't be seen running against the experience of her would-be predecessor, the man who's president now, because yeah. they're of the same party, and she was part of his administration for four years. So she can't absolutely say, I disagree with Barack Obama on this, 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 and this. She's going to have to say, I want to support what he did and embrace the things I agree mm -hmm. with, but move further on the following dimension, and that's, I think, the one we call the equality dimension. In foreign policy, I think, to a very considerable degree, you're going to see a focus on much of the same with the implied understanding that she will be strong in disputes, that she will not be easy to bully or roll over. Partly that's a function of, as a woman, she has to demonstrate. Partly that's a function of a recognition that the critics of the Obama administration keep pointing to mm -hmm. uh, his inability to make some things, in their words, hold up and to take the fight to the country's enemies or opponents the way they would like. That is Associates Editor at the South African-based news outlet, the Daily Maverick, Brooks Spector. He was on the line to the economy. So it's 17.19 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Digest. Right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the South African Opposition Party, the Democratic Alliance, or DA, visited the largest transit camp, providing shelter to approximately thousands of foreign nationals displaced by the ongoing attacks against them in the country's KwaZulu-Natal province. 
The day to date, six people have been killed, hundreds of shops have been looted, closed down or burnt, and a wave of terror and criminality has been unleashed on foreign nationals. Since the beginning of these violent attacks, which erupted in Soweto, a township in the Gauteng province, in recent months, there's been conflicting views on whether or not there are xenophobic incidents. To reflect more on the situation, we are now joined on the line by a sociologist from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Sergi Nasia. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Sergi. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, Sergi, um, there's been this violence against foreign nationals that started in Soweto earlier this year, and some are struggling um, whether to term it xenophobia or Afrophobia or even to term it anything. Um, would you say this is xenophobia? Look, uh, uh, I, I don't think it uh, it helps us very much to to debate about the definitions of uh, to debate definition. The fact of the matter is that there has been attacks and these attacks have been directed against foreign nationals in in the main. So whether one calls it Afrophobia or Xenophobia, the fact of the matter is that uh, people, uh, large numbers of people have been displaced, and it's been on the basis of uh, the foreign nationality. So in, in, in those terms, um, uh, it, it is uh, xenophobic. Uh, and we need to view it in those, uh, view it in, in that light. You say people have been displaced, and it's based on their nationality. But at the same time, you also say we can view it as xenophobic. But you don't want to say it's xenophobia. Yeah, uh, look, I don't think it helps us. Uh, you know, uh, debating about definition. Uh, I think what needs to happen is we need to look at. Uh, uh, this picture more broadly in terms of uh, 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 where South Africa is at the moment and where we should be. We, look, we need to look, uh, uh, you know, look, look at our history as well and, and various other factors. Uh, we need to look at um, the South African nation-building project and how it has unraveled during the post-apartheid era. And uh, uh, these attacks against foreign nationals is, is merely symptomatic of the direction in which uh, we as uh, uh, South Africa and uh, uh, the South African National uh, Building Project, uh, the direction in which we are moving. As such, let's talk about that direction. Um, you say it's because of the direction that South Africa is moving, but what is that direction? Okay, uh, look, the direction we have been moving is uh, informed by uh, deep structural crises, both socially uh, and economically, and in addition to that, uh, politically as well. So, uh, 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 you know, we need to be looking at it in, in those terms. Uh, if we look at uh, the social aspect, uh, I've been talking about the South African Nation Building Project in the post-party area which has unraveled so quickly within a very short space of time. We have come from a history of exclusivity and privilege, and uh, uh, what we aspired to was an inclusive uh, society that is caring and driven by the best of humanitarian uh, ideals. And this has uh, unraveled or retreated into something 
that is, uh, uh, you, you know, to put it very bluntly, a very crude, narrow uh, conception of nationalism, which is very, uh, which is very concerning. It's interesting that you say that we come from a history of exclusivity um, and privilege, but at the same time you'd hear from a lot of South Africans, especially black South Africans, saying that they don't come from a history of privilege. And that's perhaps why, and it's, it's probably, and, and that's perhaps why these are taking place because, um, the narrative you'd hear on the ground is that they don't have jobs and the people that are coming from other African countries are taking the few jobs that they are, that there are anyway. Yeah, uh, look, um, uh, when I'm talking about ex- exclusivity, I'm talking about the exclusion of the, uh, of the masses of uh, primarily black people from uh, from the uh, political, economic, and uh, social system of South Africa of the past. So what I was saying is that uh, in the new South Africa, we expected an inclusive system, uh, which uh, uh, you know was me- which which is meant to display the best of um, of uh, humanitarian ideals and, and and so on and so forth. But what has happened because of uh, uh, because this has been informed by, uh, if you remember what I was uh, saying earlier, the economic crisis as well, where we have got uh, rampant poverty, inequality, inequality, and unemployment. Uh, this has uh, all um, uh, contributed to uh, what we are seeing today, uh, to to the xenophobic uh, 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 or Afrophobic. Uh, violence or whatever you want to tell me. Um, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, that, that we think today. All right. Um, Saji, as a sociologist, would you say that there's been integration of foreign nationals into South African society, or do people still live in silos and there's no um, integration at all? Look, uh, uh, coming to the political aspect, I think in, uh, there, there hasn't been a concerted political uh, effort to integrate uh, foreign nationals into communities. But having said that, many, many of uh, foreign nationals have lived in communities and have contributed uh, substantively to these communities for a, 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 uh, an extended period of time. So uh, uh, what has happened because of these uh, uh, structural crises that I've been talking about, uh, Foreign nationals have become soft targets, and uh, there is uh, an element of scapegoating that is taking place here. Mm. Um, and what would you then say would be the best way forward in this in this scenario? Yeah, look, uh, the the solution cannot only be political. Uh, we need to leave us the whole idea of what it is to be South African. And uh, in the in the present uh, climate, it's it's very difficult for us, uh, you know, for me personally, to be proudly South African. We 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 need to revisit these ideas of inclusivity. You know, uh, uh, what does it mean to have an inclusive South Africa? Not only inclusive South African citizens, but also people who come in from the outside and uh, who contribute to uh, the sense of South Africanness. And, this, uh, and uh, remember as well that South Africa is not an island. It is part of this global system. 
so the idea of global citizenship uh, as well needs to also inform the debate. Um, as a South African uh, sociologist, I'm sure you've spoken to South Africans on uh, on their feelings, and you you sort of probably have gathered those their narratives on how on basically how they feel about foreign nationals coming into their environment. Do you think this will be an easy task? The inclusivity that you're talking about. Look, uh, uh, it it needs to be, it 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 needs a collective effort. It can't be only done uh, uh, politically, because as we know, uh, we all know politicians uh, the way they behave and the way they act. Uh, we, we, we need uh, all constituencies on board here. NGOs uh, or some NGOs are doing some fantastic work. The churches are, are, are now coming on board here and, uh, and, and helping out in, in whichever way they can. Other religious organizations are also doing the same thing. So there is the work, and uh, the, uh, the space needs to be created for all organizations, all constituencies, to have a kind of uh, uh, national, not nationalistic, dialogue on this particular issue. I think it is urgent. Otherwise, our, uh, the aspirations that uh, uh, our uh, uh, you know, our liberation uh, fighters uh, fought for and so on and so forth, it's, it's going to be quickly, it's going to quickly unravel. Lastly, lastly Saji, um, do you think the leaders have done enough, whether these are community leaders, whether these are political leaders on a national level, or even whether it's traditional leaders, we, we do know that the current spate is largely attributed to the Zulu king, that would be King Zulitin. Look, uh, I think that was merely a spark uh, that was used by some, uh, uh, you know, uh, some some people to uh, uh, to legitimate their actions. Uh, but I, I think uh, the uh, more uh, there needs to be uh, greater political will, political leadership uh, shown on this particular issue here. Um, All right. And uh, and I think uh, South Africans need to come out in force against this uh, abhorrent uh, action by, uh, by, by, by groups of people against foreign nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, Saji Naidu, so, uh, Saji Nasia, uh, rather, <laughs> apologies. <laughs> Saji Nasia, sociologist from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, thank you very much for joining us today, tonight. Okay, sure. Thank you. All right, here's Onel shares the news headlines. Votes counted so far in the presidential elections in the Sudan capital, Khartoum, has put the incumbent President Omar Hassan al-Bashir in the lead. At least 6,000 Burundian refugees have fled into Rwanda over the past month, fearing violence in the build-up to Burundi's presidential elections. And the Institute of Race Relations says frustration amongst South Africans is a contributing factor to the xenophobic attacks experienced at various places in the country. Channel Africa News. 
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. We're at 17.32 Central African time right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, as countries around the globe gear themselves up to mark World Malaria Day, next week, the Rollback Malaria Partnership is advocating for increased access to and awareness of a preventive care for malaria in pregnancy. Pregnant women are highly vulnerable to malaria infection, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where each year approximately 10,000 women end up to 200,000 infants will die. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Matthew Chico, who is a lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Matthew. Well, thank you for having me on the line. Mm. Now, why is it necessary to advocate for access to key preventive measures for malaria in pregnancy? Well, uh, for several reasons, and you mentioned uh, what we refer to as the burden of disease, the number of of uh, children uh, and women who are adversely affected um, due to malaria infection. It's, it's uh, prevalent, but entirely preventable. Mm-hmm. You're saying it's entirely preventable, but can you just talk about uh, preventive measures there? Yes. Well, um, there are really two primary means of prevention. The first is to use an insecticide-treated bed net um, to prevent the, the infection in the first place. And that's a, that's a very important intervention. It's a very important practice for people to maintain. The uh, pregnant women as well as children, but really uh, broadly speaking, um, all members of a, of a household, um, we know that um, when, when all members of households use mosquito nets, insecticide-treated bed nets, uh, and, and there's wide coverage in a community, there's kind of like a, a, a vaccine sort of effect, a herd immunity that is achieved so that even people who may not be using uh, bed nets uh, are exposed to malaria infection less because there's broad coverage. But that doesn't do anything um, if a woman is already infected with, uh, with malaria. And oftentimes, most often, she's unaware It's uh, what we say is an asymptomatic infection. So she doesn't feel fever. She doesn't feel poorly. uh, But nevertheless, uh, she's she's carrying uh, uh, malaria parasites in her blood. And during pregnancy, that's a particular um, uh, risky 
period because the placenta is is um, commonly infected, and it's not possible to detect that through um, uh, typical diagnostic um, procedures. And so the World Health Organization recommends giving preventive treatment. Uh, Fansadar is the over the over the counter term uh, for the treatment that's recommended, uh, uh, and women are. Uh, to receive this preventive treatment when they, they seek antenatal care. Uh, so two or three times, basically uh, in the second and third trimesters, uh, the aim is to provide women with uh, uh, Fantadar um, at each scheduled visit uh, with one, one month in between visits uh, to provide uh, assurance that that her placenta is not infected, and the, the the young child inside grows fully and realizes full potential. Let's talk about what could cause the woman to have no symptoms. What would result in that? Well, in areas where malaria is commonly um, uh, transmitted, uh, the individuals, but. Pregnant women, uh, they develop a, a level of immunity. It's semi-immunity. And so it means that she may not uh, become very ill, uh, but nevertheless uh, her blood will still commonly, and this is about between, it depends on the time of pregnancy, but it could be between 30 and 50% of women um, uh, actually having a malaria infection. But it's asymptomatic, so she's not aware of it. And that that leads to uh, anemia uh, in pregnancy as well. And that and anemia uh, in pregnancy is um, also problematic. It, it, it leaves the woman less able um, uh, to contract muscles, her muscles during delivery, and it's, she's more likely to, uh, to hemorrhage and to bleed uh, in an uncontrolled way. So, so the idea of reducing anemia uh, through pre- through um, the providing Fantadar, as well as increasing, it's really the birth weight of, of uh, the newborns um, as really key uh, to this, this particular intervention. Would you say a lot of countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, understand that they need to have mosquito nets or people in those countries? And, and is it done often enough? Well, I think there's a there's a general sense that mosquito nets should be used, um, uh, but sometimes old habits are hard to break. And so, so it's not to say that just because a household has a mosquito net that that mosquito net is properly used. Uh, it may be used for other purposes, and it's really um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because it represents a, a life, life-saving um, uh, intervention. And, and in terms of, of uh, the Fantadar and preventive treatment, the, the key thing here is that, you know, women do seek antenatal care in relatively high percentages. Uh, so women uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa uh, may, may seek uh, or may have uh, two, three, four visits uh, before delivering. And that's good, and that's, that's a real step uh, in terms of progress in, um, in really recent years. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of, of congratulations to go around. But when you have such high coverage of, of, uh, uh, of antenatal care, you would hope that, that uh, Fancidar would be provided um, in the second and third trimester 
on each of those visits. And sadly, only one quarter of women receive Vansadar when they seek antenatal care. Um, they've received two dose, two uh, or more doses. So it's it's woefully inadequate. And in fact, um, uh, 15. This is looking at data uh, from the most recent reporting period. But 15 million women who were pregnant of 35 million throughout the the region didn't receive a single dose of preventive treatment for malaria pregnancy. And so so the bed net usage is better. It's close to about 40% coverage, but the Fancidar preventive treatment is around 25, and we really, really need to uh, get that closer to, you know, 80, 90% coverage uh, in order to save the lives that are entirely savable. And would you say there's enough funding for malaria prevention? Well, um, that's a very good question. Um, I do think that additional resources... uh, uh, should be uh, brought to bear on on the issues of malaria gen- in general uh, and malaria and pregnancy in particular. Uh, I think the the um, uh, the issue there really for uh, the, the issue really does uh, first and foremost though have more to do with uh, providing the fancidar that is available. Um, it's a relatively inexpensive um, treatment. It's about 20 U.S. cents per dose. And, um, you know, there are stock outages, certainly, on occasion, but it's not uh, to say it's a, a particularly expensive uh, treatment. And so, so, yes, more resources are needed. I think needed to support the, the health system's uh, delivery and, 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 and a kind of comprehensive antenatal care package. Uh, and uh, providing Fancidar is part of that. Yes. So, so there is certainly a need for increasing uh, funding, but I but I do think we can also make great strides with uh, with current levels. All right, Matthew Chico from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Now, as the conflict escalates, almost 11 million people in Yemen are severely food insecure. Millions more are at risk of not meeting their basic food needs. This is according to the latest food security assessment released by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. For more on the situation on the ground, here's FAO's representative in Yemen, Salah el Haj Hassan. Now, the numbers and the assessment that was conducted by FAO and the partners was showing that the conditions that the country is undergoing now in terms of the crisis plus the fact that Yemen imports even more than 90% of the foodstuff, the large portion of it, which is wheat, rice, and corn, which is for food and feed. This is usually announced to be the stock for sustaining the country for three, four months under normal conditions. With the upcoming crisis now, the numbers are completely different and the stock is completely disturbed in storage places that have been targeted. And add to this that around 13% above the 10 millions, we are talking about almost 12 million Yemenis, are becoming food insecure under these conditions, which is really an important and a critical situation that the international community should be considering. And the report highlights disruption in the markets. Can you elaborate more on what's happening there? 
You know, in, in several places, several governorates in Yemen, there have been places used mainly for stocking, for storing wheat, for example, which is the largest portions imported. These warehouses have been targeted by bombing, and accordingly, the local markets and local middlemen and traders have been increasing the prices of flour, and this is important material that's used daily by most of the Yemenese families. And this has been registered to be increasing in the prices from one place to the other, but it has been tremendously increased relatively to the uh, situation that was, let's say, three, four weeks before the crisis. What is FAO doing to support those in need? One of the critical issues that we should consider and for the international community who is hearing us to learn that the situation is very dynamic, that uh, people are really uh, moving displaced from one place to the other, which is a very critical situation. And have in mind that 75% of the population living in rural areas, and as long as most of the areas has been targeted, it means that this has been creating a sort of a dynamic process where most of the time it's difficult to identify the IDPs, the internally displaced people and families. This is one of the difficulties that we are facing. Still, we are running now an assessment collectively with different partners and NGOs and the different governorates so that we can further update the information about those IDPs and to be able really to make whatever possible support that can be done. And now for us, for example, we have been already starting to deliver some agricultural inputs, major inputs, uh, even feed, seeds, fertilizers, even livestock assets to be distributed to the farmers and at least two governorates. And we were planning for another two governorates. That some difficulties are faced related to the uh, security conditions, of course, the availability of fuel to the movement and the access most of the time. However, we are committed and we confirm that we are trying our best really to be consistent even supporting the Minister of Agriculture and the colleagues and different uh, governorate to be able to deliver as much as possible services that can be very critical to the farming communities and to the IDPs as well. What needs to be done going forward? Where should the emphasis be placed? You know, the water issue in Yemen is very critical, as everybody knows, and also whatever can be coordinated on two levels, one from remotely and one on the ground. On the ground, everything related to food security is being coordinated by the FAO, as we are co-leading a cluster for food security. And as I said, we are in the middle of an assessment. We hope that is going to be soonest, the, you know, announced and released about the results of this assessment related to the identifications of the most vulnerable, and we are really continuing as much as possible activities that can reduce the crisis impact on the farmers' communities as well as the IDPs and different regions and areas of Yemen. That is Salah El Hassan, who is a representative of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization in Yemen. He was on the line from Lebanon talking to Sandra Ferrari. It's 17.46 Central African time. Here's your economic news. The International Monetary Fund says it expects the world's economy to expand by 3.5% this year, but the economic picture differs across the world. It says the impact of the global financial crisis is still being felt. Chief economist of the International Monetary Fund is Olifir Blancard. We forecast global growth uh, this year, 2015, to be roughly the same, to a rounding error to that of uh, 2014, uh, 3.5%. Uh, this, this global number uh, reflects 
two main evolutions. The first one is an increase uh, in the growth rate of advanced economies from uh, 1.8% last year to 2.4% this year. But it is offset by a decrease uh, in the growth rate of emerging market and developing economies. South Africa's Labour Union, South African Trade and Allied Workers Union, says it has provided police with the full details of an alleged murder plot targeting its leaders. This, as the union's general secretary, Chris Nkosi, was gunned down on Monday in Germiston, east of Johannesburg. Satao President June Dubes House was petrol bombed a few hours later. Satao Deputy General Secretary Nicholas Mazia says Nkosi was in the top three of the alleged hit list together with him. After several emails, correspondent amongst people which are faceless indicated that indeed they are now coming for life of some of the leaders in the organization. And it is important to say those information are sitting with the police services as we speak. The World Bank says Malawi's economy is currently characterized by macroeconomic instability and barriers to trade, a move that has to be attended to by government to improve growth of prospects. This comes a month after President Peter Motarika pleaded with the bank to unlock a frozen aid reportedly to boost what was called the staggering economy. George Mongo reports from Blantyre in Malawi. In what could be described as a slap in the back, the Bretton Woods institution has cut Malawi's 2015 economic growth prospects measured by gross domestic product GDP. World Bank projects that the domestic economy would slow down to 5.1%, mainly due to adverse weather, which is likely to affect agricultural production and subsequent manufacturing. World oil markets may take longer to tighten than expected due to a surge in OPEC supply and a potential rise in Iranian exports. The International Energy Agency has raised its forecast for global oil demand growth in 2015 for a second consecutive month. Oil prices have halved above $115 a barrel last June due to ample supply. Botswana's consumer inflation is steady at 2.8%. The data from the statistics office has revealed on a month-on-month basis prices rose by 0.4% in March after falling 0.4% previously. In market update, the US dollar, 1207 South African Rand, 982 Botswana Pula, 716 Zambia, 068 British Palm, 94 Euro, Gold, 1190 dollars, Platinum, 1146 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude, 58 dollars, 95 cents a barrel. For Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoko. Seventeen fifty Central African time. It's your sports news with Figile. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with athletics. South Africa's 100-meter record holder, Simon Mahakwe, has been handed a two-year ban for evading doping officials. The sprinter failed to take part in an International Association of Athletics Federation controlled out-of-competition doping test in December. Athletics South Africa President Alex Kosana says Mahakwe did not fail a doping test, but rather failed to undergo one. 
Yes, it is true that Mr. Mahakwe uh, Simon has been suspended and is, uh, has been given a two-year suspension based on Rule 32.2C. It's an IWF rule that says if you fail to submit to the doping officials, you will have to be called for disciplinary uh, hearing and you'll be given the opportunity to state as to why. And thereafter, the IWF and the relevant uh, doping agencies will be able to take the matter forward. And he has gone through all the stages. Meanwhile, Skosana says they are excited about the team to take part in the upcoming African Youth Championship scheduled from the 23rd to the 26th of April in Mauritius. This is the best team we have. It has just been selected over the past weekend in Bloemfontein and based on a three-day heavy, heavy and hectic uh, championships where all the bright athletes, best athletes of this country from all the corners of this country came to qualify for the IWF World Championships, Commonwealth Games, as well as Africa Youth uh, Championships. So it's the best of the best and uh, there is nothing that we have left behind. Whosoever is there has qualified by miles and many seconds from what we have set and we believe that they will be able to come back with honor and glory to this country. They'll fly the flag of the Republic of South Africa and make the South African anthem to be played each and every time they win a gold medal, if they are going to win a gold medal. Athletics Kenya lived up to its promise to suspend Rosa Association and Volari Sports for six months pending investigations into doping allegations. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi brings us the story from Nairobi, Kenya. The Federation believes it's within such time they expect the investigations into the manager's role in the positive doping cases and other violations will be completed. AK announced the closure of the Keringet training camp run by former national cross-country team coach Charles Ngeno, who has in the past used training programs designed by one of the most successful athletics coaches, Italian Renato Canova, and banned the local tactician from handling any local athletes indefinitely. Rosa Associati camp managed by Italian Federico Rosa, who coached leading marathoner Rita Jepto, is currently serving a two-year ban of for EPO and handles several Kenyan athletes, including reigning world champions Eunice Sum of 800 meters, Asbel Kiprop of 1500 meters, AK cracked the whip on Gerard van de Veen of the Netherlands, who manages the reigning world marathon record holder Dennis Kimeto and former hold, holder Wilson Kipsang, Geoffrey Mutai, two-time New York winners, among others. And in tennis news, world number four, Lucas Sitore, advanced to the quarterfinals of the airport's company, South Africa's SA Open at Ellis Park. Lali Standard reports. Eighth seed Bongani Dlamini and unseeded Stephen Kikai crashed out in the second round quad singles, leaving world number three Lucas Satori as the only South African standing in the airport's company South Africa SA Open. Sitoli had no trouble dispatching Frenchman Stefan Erishman, and the third seed does not expect much resistance from unseeded Israeli Itai Erendip in the quarterfinals on Thursday, who defeated seventh seed Anders Hart from Sweden 6 love 6 3. That guy from Israel, I saw him playing Bongan Lamini. He was just rallying from the baseline, which I would need to do is I would just need to take time out of him, like uh, play one bounce. I, I think I will, I'll, I'll be fine if I can do that uh, perfectly and stay positive. Lali Stander, Airports Company, South Africa, is open, Johannesburg. 
And finally, Floyd Mayweather Jr. held a public workout in Las Vegas ahead of this fight with Manny Pacquiao that will take place in Las Vegas on the 2nd of May. What will we see today with Floyd Mayweather on what side? Um, you know, a guy that's very, very focused, a fighter that's focused, um, a fighter that has a lot to prove. And uh, like I said before, I had a uh, tremendous career. You know, 19 years, 18 years world champion. And my team, you know, I, I commend my team and take my hat off to my team. They, my team done a remarkable job, you know, outside the ring while I continue to, you know, get inside the ring and take care of business. That's a sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. At 17.56, let's read the part of stories. France declassifies documents in the presidential archives relating to the 1994 Rwandan genocide. South African authorities battle to contain attacks against foreign nationals. In economics, African seaborne gas exports will play a bigger role in meeting global LNG trade growth. And in sports, South Africa's 100-meter record holder Simon Mahakwe handed a two-year ban. And that wraps up Africa Digest. From myself, Spumila Lezondi, producer Luanda Mao, technical producer Charles Moy, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Please send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us text messages on plus 2782-332-5905, plus 2782-332-5905. We leave you with a plea for Africa by Spongile Kumano.